Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, it's Allison. Welcome back to the podcast. Very excited to have another interview session this time. We'll be having a conversation with my dear friend, Dr. Marina Blufstein. She is a professor and a director of the Center for Adlerian Practice and Scholarship at the Adler University in Chicago and Vancouver. She is also an Adlerian psychologist and a licensed marriage and family therapist. Her clinical practice is in Minnesota. She's a writer a researcher, and she has presented and taught at Lyrian Topics in 22 countries. Marina, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Alison. I'm just kind of thinking, oh my God, 22 countries, did I count it? I mean, I'm a firstborn, so I, I, I like precision, and I thought, oh, did I, you know, did it blow it out of proportion? There was really 22 countries, so it was a privilege to do that, and I, I'm just so happy to be talking to you and uh, to have a conversation. I love conversations. Well, I said, we're going to have a good cup of coffee and talk about Adlerian parenting Adler the man. And I was saying it's, it's the reason you've spoken at 22 countries is because there are countries all around the world who want to tap into your expertise. And I think that you really, you know, of our colleagues have really made a commitment and a dedication to digging into the the original archives to really know the man, his original contributions, his original writings. You followed the family lines very deeply. You're a, you're a bit of a, an um, archivist and a historian on top of all the present day contributions that you make. I, I really appreciate that about you. So I, I, I do want to tap into what you know about this this man, Alfred Adler, and um, and and maybe bring to our list listeners 
a, a, a new understanding of him because I think many people tune in because they want to get help with a tantrum or a, a, a teen that's vaping. <laughs> and and they don't realize that part of why the people that are Illyrian are so enthusiastic and loyalists really about him is because he really was such a unique person with a philosophy and a psychology. And I think you just know it so much more deeply than than so many others. So can you just introduce Alfred Adler, um, maybe how you discovered him and, and what first got you interested in him? Um, yeah, uh, I think uh, I, I also need, I just want to add a little bit to uh, Alison, you talking about my uh, historical archival work and my digging deeper. So just to, to sum it up, I just want to tell, now you know how neurotic I am. Uh, <laughs> but you do it on so, the useful side of life so we appreciate it and that's one of the Adlerian thing right so we you know most of us like the the the, the huge chunk of humanity are um quite neurotic which is a good thing uh because that kind of prompts us and pushes us and tickles us to become better to go deeper or to go higher or to go wider which is not as bad uh it's uh it, it's actually a very good thing for as long as it is done on the useful side when the goal of this going higher or deeper or wider when the goal is an ultimate harmony or greater harmony uh, between people and that's what uh, adler was all about so he was promoting harmony in everything he did and everything he wrote about or presented so what got me into it, I have no very clear memory about like the day, I cannot tell you that was that day when I got into Adler. There must have been a day uh, when I'll fully retire, when I retire, uh, I might go and try to uh, go back and find the date. But I think um, what I was trying, kind of in a very practical sense, uh, I was um, looking for something myself to do and uh and to make living and uh what i uh, you probably guessed by now that at least on monday mornings i speak with an accent and today is a monday morning so when i came to this country which was almost 30 years ago and um i used to be uh actually a high school teacher my teaching expertise uh was an experience was of no use at all in this country so in the united states so then uh, i was just thinking okay so what am i gonna do and then at the ripe age as i thought ripe age i thought i'm very 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 too old to change things a little bit i know that it was not but i was 32 i think at that time i going into 33 uh, I switched the career and I went to my career number five because I had four before and I went to study counseling. I had no idea about the name of Adler and uh, uh, and it just came as, as a part of my counseling training because it just happened to be a Lyrian counseling. And then Where was it? Where was your first? It was in Minnesota. Minnesota. At that, it was the Adler Institute at that time. It was called. It was in 1990s. And so then from there, then I was, and it really wasn't sticking. I mean, it was kind of sticking. I was doing the quizzes and writing papers and doing the right thing. So it was nice. It was good. There was nothing wrong in that. But it was not getting into me, into my guts. My guts remained unaffected by any of that. I was kind of a trade at that time. Um, and part of it was perhaps the language things, 
kind of language handicap, things stay kind of abstract and didn't like, I, I wanted to taste things. I love to taste things and it didn't taste anything. And then uh, I was just started looking into Adler's life and what he was about and what were his partners or partner in life and what he was like, like a child or did he have children himself? How did it all end? And, you know, as a parent and all kind of things and oh my god i just there was no end since that point on whatever happened at this fateful moment turning my interest um i can stop and there is really no stop not because of my any of my obsessive compulsive tendencies but because there is really no bottom in it and from that by learning about Adler, the person and his life and the family he came from, the family his wife came from, how they coupled the friends they had, what children they had, how they raised the children, how he aged, how his wife aged, how his children ended up. Then the theory just became so much more meaningful. It's kind of, it's living and breathing for me because as I sometimes think and oftentimes say, it was like not that he woke up one morning and say, oh, let's create the theory. He was waking up every morning into being uh, a fiance, then being uh, a husband, then being a father of one, then a father of two, then a father of three, then a father of four, uh, right? And uh, and sometimes he was waking up into bitter uh, fights with his wife and disagreements about things. And sometimes he would waken up into uh, the, the full, complete love affair with his wife. And sometimes he was waking up at some point uh, having almost lost a child. His oldest daughter was in prison and he didn't know about that, but she disappeared. And so later in his life, he was waking up into that um, the, the sense of impending kind of doom and loss and fear and struggle. And then some days, one day, one day, some days he was waking up needing to immigrate and needing to move. So, and that all was feeling, so his theory was coming from his daily life, right? And uh, his uh, ideas about child raising or marriage or genders or psychopathology, what have you, it all was coming to him because he was living, breathing, walking, dealing with his own physical maladies because he was not a healthy. So the whole idea of inferiority came from his experience. There's no apples that was falling on his head if he were to sit under the apple tree. I'm not sure there were apple trees yeah. in <laughs> yeah, in, in, but, in uh, Vienna in 1870. Yeah. Whatever, whatever, whatever. So it was not that. So then, so that became kind of, you know, it's an interesting endeavor for me. I uh, love the story because to me, there is no history without the stories. Yes. Yes. And story. And I love stories. And the stories are wonderful. And stories stick, stories are remembered. I remembered. And, and that's what I love. Well, yeah. and, you know, and I, and I, it's a it's a conversation that modern day or whatever uh, this generation of Adlerians often talk about, which is was his theory done or did he just pass? And was it always meant to be evolving? Because uh, as you study his life and you to your point, um, 
uh, understand how he's cobbling together his personal experiences and turning it into a formalized kind of thinking and philosophy and an actionable way of being in relationships with other people. Um, it, it, he did change his mind about things and he did layer and progress. And if you study it historically, you see his change and you see the world events that would have shaped that. And, um, and I, I'm in agreement that if he was in the context of 2024, that he would still have been evolving his, his theories and his thinking. I think of him as being open-minded and, um, not, not done, not final and fictive and complete. Not, 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 not orthodox, right? So, so he was not an orthodox in that way. And it's sometimes to the detriment, of course, because, um, you know, there is certain safety in being um, an orthodox, in uh, sticking to your guns, in not deviating, being linear, protecting your boundaries, your borders, um, making sure that there are no uh, descent of any way. So Freud showed that to us, right? So because Freud guarded that, uh, uh, and Freud being the firstborn, he had to do that. I mean, that was his job as a firstborn to do this. And Adler was uh, flexible, and sometimes perhaps some might say a bit too flexible, but he was very, very open. And it's interesting, interesting you ask this question, and we're having this conversation because. Not only he was very flexible and open, which sometimes he suffered from, um, and I'll tell later a little bit about how, why I think that way, but he also believed that flexibility is a core ingredient of healthy personality and healthy development. So he was flexible even with his theory, which allowed him to evolve it. I mean, he was changing definition even for those of you uh, who've been trained, at least listen to some trained adherents, and you know that term lifestyle, which we kind of use like on and on and on and on, uh, that was, I think, like number five in Adler's own iteration of the terms for what we believe is, you know, what Adler saw as personality, essentially, right? So uh, there was a lifeline, the guiding line, life plan, life pattern, uh, and then lifestyle. I mean, and that these were that it was not like playing Adler playing with words. Uh, they were qualitative differences in the way he was like he started using that and flexing that, and then and he was not afraid to change that. And he would just go like from 1920 roughly to 1929 when he sort of settled on lifestyle. Um, uh, he he was changing things, and there is really pattern like a life like a line, chronological line in how he was changing that, make, making it much more fuller, much more kind of multidimensional. Like if you're thinking about lifeline and lifestyle, the line is a line, right? The style is much fuller and the style is also a verb, right? Line is not really a verb. It doesn't feel a verb to me as a non-native speaker, at least. But the the style, we style our life. So, and, and um, uh, Ansbacher, Heinz Ansbacher, who um, studied with the Adler and then translated most of the Adler, at least was the first full translator of all the Adler. He once said that uh, if a, if a word cannot be made a verb, it's not a psychology. Uh-huh. That's an Adlerian piece. It is a total Adlerian piece. So the lifestyle 
uh, is really with styling our life. How do we style the life? And Adler was very, very flexible, very, very open. And when I said sometimes to the detriment is that Adler's ideas were just so attractive. They're just so attractive. They were just catchy and they were very, very attractive that when things are attractive, they're attracted to everybody. I mean, attractiveness does not discriminate. Like, you know, everything is like flying in on that because like, you know, everybody likes to put like a catchy phrase or catchy idea into their, into their behavior, into the movement, whatever. In early to mid 1930s, um, when Adler already, by that time, he moved to the United States. He technically moved in 1929, officially immigrated in 1932. And one of his private letters to one of his secretaries, Evelyn Arath, one of his later secretaries, he wrote about the bitter feelings, the bitterness with bitterness um, about Hitler taking on his uh, ideas of Gemeinschaftsgefühl. And he wrote literally, I've read the letters, I've read this correspondence that even poor Hitler is using our ideas, but there is nothing we can do about that at this point. I mean, just in his at this point in his life, uh, you know, the Nats already won the elections and then he Adler was in the United States and, you know, what, what, what I mean, he wouldn't go back to Austria and uh, so, uh, but, but the thing is that uh, it, it, it's a package deal. So, yes, if you keep it straight and you don't allow dissent and you keep it clean and clear, um, then uh, nobody's going to be using that. But then nobody's going to be using that. Like nobody's speaking Latin on the street right now. But somebody's keeping it clean and straight as a, as a language, right? What I like to think about that is that when I'm a gardener, I don't know if you know about that. I but... sure do. I follow you on Facebook. I, are you kidding me? You, Yeah, gardener. Okay. So there is a thing is that I start my garden from the seeds. We usually in Minnesota, we start from the seeds on April 1st, keep it indoor until June 1st, right? And the June 1st after the last threat of frost. So here's the point I'm trying to make is that, um, so when we put the seed in, in, a, in, a, in a pot with the um, uh, with the soil um, is um, you, there are usually two options. You can use like a mix that is soilless mix uh, that uh, got the whole bunch of things like chemicals in it that would help the seed to sprout very fast. But then uh, it's soilless, so it doesn't have any dirt. It doesn't have any natural nutrient, any uh, natural like organic neutral nutrients at all. So as soon as this uh, seed sprouts, um, maybe when it's like, I don't know, like five centimeters tall, whatever, you've got to replant it into the um, soil uh, mix. Uh, that's got the dirt and microbes and all kind of nasty things. So whatever, whatever soil's got, whatever dirt's got, right? Or you can start because the soilless mixture only allows the seed to sprout. It doesn't promote growth. Mm. It's never going to fruit. Nothing is going to happen there. Um, or the other option, but it's going to happen very fast. The other option to put the seed into the soil mix, that is like soil. It's just a piece of the soil. The same, I mean, it has, I mean, it's got some compost in it and some other things they need, uh, vermiculite, whatever it is, but it's soil. It's got microbes, it's got all the dirt, it's got, I mean, it's just a complete soil. 
the seed will sprout, the, the plant will sprout. It's not going to happen really fast. There are going to be some dangers. You have to make sure that there is no like spoilage of the, you know, the, the, the surface is not moldy. Um, you have to put the fans on, you have to put in you know, all kinds of things. You need to put some mats, like warming mats underneath. It's They're going to sprout a little slower, but you don't need to change the soil because it's a soil. So the dirt is a good thing because nothing is coming, nothing is ever growing and fruiting. Growing is okay. Fruiting is a different thing. Nothing is ever going to be fruiting from a soilless, clean, sterile, sanitized mixture. So Adlerian idea grew in in a soilful and soulful, perhaps. <laughs> mixture. I like that play on words. Soilful and soulful. <laughs> it's got that dirt and there's a mold. And there's always the risk that it's not going to sprout. It's not going to sprout fast enough. And then you need to do some conditioning, kind of warming mats and all kind of things, the lighting and all sort of things. Um, but it's a real stuff. It's a real stuff. So in psychology, to me, I hope it makes sense, my gardening analogy, it's real stuff. It, it's dirty, but you got to have your hands dirty. Yeah. Right? The first person, I think, going back to whatever, 5,000 years ago, wasn't the first person made with dirt clay? No. In the in the in the, bib in the biblical stories, yes. In yeah. the biblical story, yeah. the God's hand must have been very dirty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. At the end. So and this is how we grow people, we grow ourselves. We cannot do it without getting the hands dirty. And in the gardening metaphor, uh, my one of my German colleagues, um Horst Gruner. Uh, once said, once, and it was once like in 1960s, like a while ago, said that Adlerian psychology is like a garden. Everybody can find something uh, to their taste there. So true. And it's such a robust psychology. So tell me what, when, when, uh, you you mentioned when we were talking about the optimism as being one of the qualities that people really like when they say like what's not to like about Illyrian psychology it's taste like it's it, it does have so many tasteful qualities and optimism is is I think one of the cardinal hallmarks almost one of the differentiating features from a whole lot of other theories of personality yeah. he, really super optimistic can can you say more about like you know what that word means to an entire psychology? I think, you know, uh, once you said the, uh, the the optimism and the hopefulness, uh, even before you finish the sentence, my brain went into the other the man, <laughs> other the person, and uh, and the time he lived in. So he lived through uh, interesting times. We would say, you know, sometimes there is like a, a funny, um, ridiculous wish for others who we may not like, we say, may you always live in interesting times. So he lives in interesting times in history. So he lived through uh, World War One, and at the right age of 40, 40 something. So he was constricted and he uh, served as a military doctor in the hospitals with typhoid uh, soldiers, prisoners, Russian, pr Russian prisoners of war in Poland. Um, he, um, uh, lived through apparently Great Depression. He saw the rise of Nazism. Um, 
he was very, very sick as a, as a, as a little child. So he had several uh, maladies. Many people know about his um, fight with uh, against uh, pneumonia because there's some like early childhood memories. And But he had some other things. So he had uh, um, rickets. And we don't know. I mean, we, we drink fortified milk uh, and have enough children drink fortified milk. But rickets was very rampant. Uh, in Adler's time, because they didn't know how to fortify the milk, and especially in the winter time, the children were uh, some children were suffering. So he had that. He had glottis. It was a spasm, illness of spasms of vocal cords. When he was um, because of rickets, he was very clumsy. He was also short, uh, so he was not a tall man. He was short, and he was clumsy, short, not particularly attractive by whatever standards. From I'm reading from his biographers. And thus he had to overcome all of that. So he was not academically like super, like in mathematics, was not super bright and had to overcome that. He had tuberculosis later in life and he had diabetes later in life. So by all the things, if we say uh, like early childhood environment or adverse childhood experiences, I know this is like a popular term. Yes. He had a lot of adversity. He had like a lot of biological adversity. Uh, his family was not rich and they constantly were changing apartments because it was trying to find something like cheaper to live in. They were not poor, poor, but they, was, they, they, they struggled a lot financially, right? Um, so from the uh, adverse, adverse childhood experiences perspectives had a lot of adversity. There were economic adversities, there were wars, there was Spanish flu, just, just think about that. So he lived through the time of Spanish flu. I mean, we know, we can relate sort of now what is it like and how it's taken a toll. So he had a lot of childhood illnesses, like a lot. Uh, and then he was actually also, he was struck by a car when he was a child. But then recently I discovered, uh, he was in Canada a few times, by the way, both uh, East Coast and West Coast. But then he was also in Montreal at some point and he was struck by a streetcar when he was like 50 something and it was it made it into the newspapers that's how i know that i study old newspapers so i found this piece of news in, in one of the montreal newspaper but the whole thing is that is that if we put it all like a single piece of paper and by default the one would be justified to be gloomy depressed expect the worst uh, because worse is actually what happens. I mean, why wouldn't you expect the worst? Because that's worse is happening, right? So when it happens, then you're sort of ready. So you spend your life prepping for the worst and like, so uh, we would definitely, if not depressed, but kind of dystymic, which kind of it's more clinical term. So kind of expecting the worst, prepping for the worst, seeing the worst. And if he were to grow up that way, we would say, yeah, of course, look, I mean, he's got a gazillion of illnesses. Uh, he had a lot of like poor biological predispositions. He went, he lived through Spanish flu, World War One, Great Depression, you know, later developed tuberculosis, later developed diabetes. Like, you know, he's justified. It, it's okay. It's normal. So Adler did completely opposite what would be default outcome, uh, kind of default deterministic outcome of that. He was an et eternal optimist and pacifist. I think pacifism, and that's my line of connecting things, is in some way, perhaps, perhaps, helped him 
to be an optimist or maybe being an optimist helped him to become pacifist. I don't know. I don't know about that. So that's like, I need to think about that. But but he was optimist despite. Mm -hmm. The overcoming piece. It's Yes, yes. It's neat. You're not fated because you had bad experience to be an Eeyore. He, he yeah. made different meaning of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And he made, uh, he, uh, he reached a different conclusion, as we sometimes say. So what you've decided to do when people are children, adults, students, whatever, uh, sometimes sharing with me the um, traumatic, poor, painful uh, childhood stories, uh, we always validate, always validate what happened, happened. So we cannot say, oh, I mean, come on. I mean, people had it worse. I mean, you know, what are you complaining about? Whatever. We don't want to say that because that's totally not true. We don't know. We have no idea. We've been trusted with the story. We uh, value, we appreciate, and we cherish this trust. But what I always ask in at the end of the story, no matter how painful, how traumatic, how dreadful that might be, I usually say, now as you are thinking of this story now, what do you remember? What do you think you remember you've decided about yourself at that time when it happened? Because the whole thing is not what happened to us, but what we've decided for our life about us, about the life, about the next step, the next courageous step or, or not courageous step after something happens, right? And we decide based on the opinion about that. So what, what the, the, the meaning of that, the meaning of what happened, what does it mean? What is that? The Adler, after all his health struggles, and we know that from his, he wrote autobiography at some point, is that he decided to become a doctor, right? Because he, uh, he was so frightful of death and, and dying, with all the physical maladies that he needed to make a decision. He needed to uh, create some sort of conclusion for himself, right? Because we, and we always do that. I mean, there is nobody who does not make any decision. We all make the decision and we don't need to sit down and say, all right, let's decide. I mean, that's been decided. It's like our brain is working nonstop. We deciding, right? And his decision was on a useful side and the useful side you'd become a doctor. Well, that's a very cool thing because first then you can always kind of treat yourself so you're not going to die. But it comes with a side benefit. You can also help others, right? I mean, what a cool decision. It's a very harmonious, very hopeful, very optimistic decision um, to become a doctor and as he wrote, and fight death. So, and you can become a doctor, um, you can become a dermatologist, right? And that's a good thing. Uh, and Adler wanted to go deeper, right? So he, he uh, so he uh, started. He, he was practicing. He was trained as an ophthalmologist. And if you think about a famous saying that we all like, saying day and night, see with the eyes of another, and hear with the ears of another. Adler was trained as an eye doctor, right? Seeing with the eyes of another is kind of a cool thing. It's part of his training. And then he was practicing neurologist, so he really wanted to go to the core of maladjustment, the core of maladies, the core of problems. And uh, because that was, psychiatry was not a discipline yet at that time, so they were uh, trained, doctors were trained in uh, neurology. But somebody given the same set of kind of package of circumstances, like the illnesses, the 
financial instability, the wars, the pandemics, the all kind of, you know, all sorts of things, clumsiness, being kind of bullied a little bit. Uh, there's no word bullied, but there was a reference in some of the people who knew him as a child and some of his biographers that because he was undersized, as they were called at the time, undersized, so he was short and he was nervous and he was not particularly attractive, he was oftentimes teased by bigger boys. Mm. So we know it's bullying, essentially. I mean, I'm kind of stretching that. But somebody could have reached another decision, right? So one of Adler's famous cases was a case that he described, Was a, I believe there was a case of grave digger, right? So if you want to die, you're fearful of death, so you can become metaphorically grave digger. So then you and dig the graves for others. Uh, so it, it's it's an interesting thing, but the most interesting thing is that the decision that he's made for himself to fight death for self and others. So there is no expectations of martyrdom. There was no expectation. Adler was very pragmatic and very realistic. He didn't do it himself and he didn't invite others to sacrifice yourself. You don't want to sacrifice yourself, right? But what you do for yourself is also good for others. And that's a cool thing. That's in our language, social interest, the Gemeinschaftsgefühl. That's yeah, right. Living right. on the socially interested part of life. That was yeah. so such yeah. a big. That's such a big component to the whole philosophy. Yeah. And so, if he this this optimism, so Dreikers picks this up as well. Dreikers is uh, again, depending on who you ask and what language is accepted or not, either his student protege or his colleague. I never want to insult the the Dreikersians, but Rudolf Dreikers. Um, then comes in and am adds, amplifies, or, or specifies more of his theory around, around the parenting. But Adler absolutely wrote about parenting, absolutely uh, talked about um, this idea of encouraged versus discouraged rather than somebody who is, again, uh, in psychological terms, we often think of people as having problems or being broken or, you know, having depression or ADHD or, you know, um, and so here Dreikers comes in and I think amplifies Adler's already optimistic piece and starts talking about what discouragement looks like in children. And um, so so let me tee it back to you to, to say more about how those two men combined their thinking and brought that to, to understanding children. Yeah, I like to think about Dreikers as a younger colleague of Adler. Uh, and uh, to me, that makes sense. It brings both kind of things together. First, that Dreikers was younger and he was quite younger. Dreikers was born in 1897 and uh, Adler got married in 1897. So, uh, but Adler was at, uh, 27 at that time. So they had like 27 years difference, but he was a younger colleague and they did work together. So it's a colleague, but he was a younger colleague. Um, and I think, uh, like you mentioned, there's like, you know, different opinion about that. I think these different opinions, not, not to disregard and discard them entirely, but I think they are kind of too linear and then when we became in linear and stuck to kind of stick to our guns, then that uh, brings us to um, kind of animosity and brings us to fight, which is totally unnecessary. What's what's interesting to add to me, it adds to the whole kind of very holistic picture is that not only Dracos was younger, which is like undeniable, right? 
and not only the directors uh, kind of drink in and took in all the Adler's wisdom, which is also undeniable, but he was a different person. He lives in different time. And most of his ideas really flourished in a different country. Mm-hmm. Uh, though he started in Vienna, uh, but uh, he started uh, when he was very, very young. So he started while Adler was there. And then Dreykus immigrated to the United States in 1937. And most of what we know about Dreykus in terms of like a greater ideas on parenting and family and couples, working with teenagers, doing group work, uh, all the psychopathology uh, uh, work, the question, all the Dreykusian like uh, uh, huge accomplishments plus his work in Adlerian movements, starting NASAP, starting journals, starting institutes, that all came when uh, most of it, at least the realization of that came when he was in the United States. So it, it's a very different country. <laughs> uh, and uh, Adler actually wrote about that, um, about United States uh, being a very, very different country with flexibility, with the whole idea of, of promoting adjustment that having to adjust versus having to comply, um, having to conform. You are expected those um, who adjust, those who are flexible, they flourish, they actually win. And so then we, when we compare Drakers and Adler, in addition to everything else, in addition to everything else, we also want to say it, 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 it bound to be different. I mean, it had to be different because it was very different environment. Um, Adler was dealing kind of practicing in his mind the psychological impact of the World War One, all the things before the war, there was a rise of teenage suicide um, in Europe, in Austria in particular, uh, before the World War One, because the economic conditions were kind of happening. And Adler wrote about that. Uh, and then Drakers dealt with different wars, so he went through World War One. Drakers actually was a an officer in World War One, so he and he was wounded, um, and um, but as as a mature psychologist, uh, uh, although he probably had a lot of things to say about the World War One and definitely impacted him, he lived through World War Two. Um, he was in the United States, but he lived through that. Everybody lived through that, and then he that helped him to understand uh, like Vietnam War. And Dreykus wrote a lot about um, the the families impacted by war and how civil discord is impacted by all the global calamities. So uh, because he was alive, he, he was living, he was a mature. Then. So they were just different people, they were completely different people, yet lived through different experience. But the beauty of it is that being very different age-wise, birth order rights, the, the family composition, the experience they lived in, the language uh, they operated mostly in, validated the very same thing. And that is the importance of encouragement, the importance of Gemeinschaftsgefühl, the feeling of oneness with the universe, right? So in fact, I love that they were in many ways so different because they're two different people from two different points, like in time, in space and everything else, they validated differently, but validated strongly, similarly strongly, uh, the very ideas of Adlerian psychology, the need to encourage children. Dreykers wrote that children need encouragement 
as a plant needs water. I forgot about that in my gardening cactus. I was going to say, goes back to your gardening metaphor. <laughs> right. The importance of early childhood modeling, right? It's interesting. Adler um, wrote about uh, it. Okay, I'm taking back the word wrote about. I, will, I want to tell you one thing that maybe some people don't know. We all know, I think we all know, that Adler mostly wrote in German, um, and it was later translated. And then we have all these talks about, is it like translated this way, translated that way? Is it social interest? Is it something else? Now, there is a piece in Adler's life, the time between 1929 and 1937, when he died, right? So it's a pretty big chunk, right? So it's eight years, talking about eight years. When Adler actually spoke English more than German. And uh, he loved the English mostly for how, especially American English, it's just, you know, you basically need to know like about 20 verbs and you can operate. Like you, you, you learn the word get, like to get. And everything is to get. You get, he gets, I get it, we got it, all kinds of things. <laughs> so the because American English is so flexible compared to very regimental German, right? Then he loves that started loving giving interviews. He gave interviews to hundreds of newspapers. Oh, wow. In English, in Canada, in Great Britain, and in the United States. So I studied all these interviews, not all of them, most of them probably. I mean, all that I could get my hands on, let's put it this way. And uh, and it's all in English. It was all in English. And this is, to me, is the only way to read Adler as like not translated, like Adler in English, like Adler speaking English. So we're not like start doubting. Mm, I mean, who translated that and how is it translated? But what's interesting is that this is where Adler wrote about um, pampering, um, spoiling children. Uh, this is when he wrote about uh, monopolizing mamas that was one of the interview that was a name monopolizing mamas um and the impact on later um child later uh, development and then he also wrote about what he called moral child and the moral child is the one who's been um spoiled who's been pampered as a child usually by the mother that's what Adler wrote at least you know that's it was his view and um and it's kind of interesting, he said, what the consequences of that. So the child would be spoiled by the mother, would do everything that mother expects him or her to do, right? To continue to be spoiled, to continue to be pampered and exploiting the mother so he or she continues to do what the mother wants him to do and continue to be pampered. And that's a moral child. It usually shows like as a good child. The, the goody two-shoes, the pleasing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now this child would be the biggest fear of would be it's a fear of growing of, of growing up. Because why would anybody want to leave such a favorable environment? It's like a greenhouse. Why would you go into the winds of the real life? I mean, you stay here because you have this microclimate, right? The only thing is that you do what others tell you to do, but that's a small price to pay for getting everything you want to get. And, uh, and it was like a, a, a mind blowing the audience. There was, I think it was like in 19, 1929 somewhere, he gave a lecture of that. And the journalist who 
wrote that who kind of relayed this other statement so that there was like a dead silence in the audience. Like everybody's from saying, oh my God, this is what like I'm doing or maybe that was done on me. And these were the children then who grow up, they don't want to lose this, they don't want to miss it. If somebody would try to evict them into the adult life, they would fight to death, right? And then if they still going to be kind of thrown out into adult life, eventually, right, they would either arrange their life in a way that would kind of replicate it, uh, what they had. Find someone else to fulfill mother's role. Yeah, yeah. Or, Or they will start failing in life, right? Because like the life is not like they've never been, they've been kind of in a greenhouse environment. They've never been... Um, kind of they've been groomed to be getting and giving what they're supposed to be getting and exploiting others so they can they can continue to be moral child. That's a moral child. It's kind of interesting term that Adler did. So Dreikers then did much more formal writing. He had it was later he had more time and of course to work on it. All the uh, children and uh, the 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 ill effect of. Uh, pampering of spoiling and children who'd been hated, the children who'd been neglected, the children been rejected, and how it works out in teenagers. And then Drakers, what Drakers did, building an Adler, this is where they also meet. Another meeting point is that um, absolutely uh, the deeply insightful writing on delinquency and the importance of education uh, in uh, not just fixing or punishing delinquency, Adler wrote about that, the, uh, the danger of punishing delinquency, but curing delinquency uh, via education and then also preventing delinquency because Adler wrote that um, in every delinquent, and Adler was kind of dramatic in his interviews. So he would like say, well, in every delinquent, in every delinquent, you'll find a spoiled child in um like somewhere like somewhere before because he saw two out kind of shoots so he saw the spoiling can lead either to delinquency or kind of criminal behavior or to uh, neurotic uh, and then he saw that in um uh, how it can be prevented and uh, he saw the roles of schools both Adler and Adler and Drakers wrote a lot about the roles that schools should play as being kind of a long arm of family, not the other way around. Now the school is it and family is an extension. It was a family is it and school is a long arm as Adler. That's Adler's language, a long arm of the family. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
That's so interesting and in how we've lost that and how he was such a <laughs> proponent of that. And Adler back in Vienna, of course, had the the centers. Sorry, I'm not losing whatever the correct name is for I've the families. Yeah. Right. And and that was a big part of the educational program in Vienna in its day. You know, the fact that he could pull that together and get that instituted. And now if you compare that to 2024, where home and school hardly have any really, we don't hardly in Canada, we don't really have school counselors. Even if they do, they're mostly helping you pick your courses for what degree you want to get, they're not talking about how are things at home. Like, you know, that's, we, yeah. We really, yeah. And uh, he really understood that, that extension. I love that the long arm of the family, that's beautiful. So he's also, it's quite interesting. I think that Canadian uh, listeners, perhaps there will be some, um, uh, would like to know, maybe people know, maybe people know that there was a very, very famous case, and I, I'm sure Canadians will know that case. It was 1935 Dion's family, the quintuplets. The, the, the Dion quintuplets, yes, from Calendar, Ontario. Yeah, and you know that they called an Adler, and Adler saw them and consulted them and wrote about them in 1935. And my understanding of that story is that there was a, to your point about when you try to translate what from the Viennese to the English, that there was a misunderstanding that he had said, uh, treat them individually. Right. And, and he meant that if you have twins, or in this case, quintuplets, that they each have their own personality, they need to be dressed in different clothes and pursue different interests. And, yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah. they interpret that as split the herd, send them off in different directions, break the family apart. And that's yeah. not at all what he was saying. Yeah. There were two topics. It's, you're right. You're right. There are two themes that I see because I followed this via, because like newspapers were, of course, all over it was a rare case in 1935. Just imagine like healthy girls and, you know, uh, doing all of that. Um, so the one was really misunderstanding, uh, perhaps, or, or him becoming too dramatic and the journalists took it like in their own way. But it was also quite interesting thing because in one of the very, very strong interviews uh, on the same family, the same topic, uh, because he followed them for for little time and he saw a huge danger in um, them being constantly exposed. And he wrote that these children, uh, there should be fewer people, that the children should be in the family and they should not be as goldfish in a fishbowl. Oh, you mean like when people put their families up on social media? Uh, that would be that. <laughs> yes, that would be that. Because it was, I think that would be like if if that family, if 1935 would be like 2024 now, that will be all over Facebook, like every moment and all the stories are going to be every day will be story. Um, uh, and this is what we do now. And this is what they, you know, uh, you, know you know, that's what we, that's what they had for breakfast today. And this is who is fuzzy. And this is how we I, I'm following one of the triplet story on Facebook with um, kind of somewhat odd interest because I thought, OK, my interest is that are they going to stop? I'm not even watching through because I thought, I don't think I have business in knowing that. And I also don't want to know how much efforts went into staging all this Facebook because they're trying to, that's family, they're trying to earn, is it like a silver point or something on Facebook? There was some status. I don't know. I don't know much about that, but I know they do. They, they're trying to encourage people to like it so they get the silver something. 
The phase oh, man. Well, all I know, I, I tried so hard to keep my kids protected from the public eye during the, my career that finally yeah. my kids said, you know, mom, even regular parents talk about their kids sometimes. You never say anything about us. I was like, oh, okay, sorry, I went the other direction. Sorry, I'll start saying things about you. <laughs> oh, what do, you want, what do you want me to say about you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How would you like me portrayed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I mean, I'm drawn to both Adler and Drikers for so many reasons about the quality of their of, of what they write. Again, we talked about the optimism and, and this idea that they both had a specific interest in harmony, cooperation, equality, and how that was um, with women, you know, raise his feisty wife, um, I think was a good starting ground for that. And then talking about equality in the family and peace beginning, uh, really through learning how to have democratic processes in the family. And, uh, and that really spoke to me. And, and Drakers definitely wrote about it differently than Adler. I mean, I love reading Adler's work because I find it reads to me more philosophical and great, like more broad strokes. And I like that. And then I fill in the details. Whereas I feel like Drakers was a little bit more helping the modern family do the application of something that was at the time, pretty mind blowing in terms of what do you mean kids should have a say? Shouldn't, you know, uh, what do you mean that they should adjust as opposed to com mm -hmm. comply to my will? I mean, these were really big thoughts and are in, in fact, still very big thoughts today in my, in my practice, when I am working with parents who have teenagers and we have to talk about <laughs> that I idea of um, you can't make them, you gotta make them wanna. Um, winning their cooperation versus forcing their obedience when they hear it they'll say well I don't want an obedient kid but I just why won't they listen <laughs> and they can't hold those two ideas that when you're saying just blindly listen you are asking them to be subservient and and to obey yeah. uh, even if your orders are seemingly good intentioned there it's still the same mechanism um, and I think Dreikers did a good job of I think creating language and techniques and putting putting theory into practice that I think at that time was really needed and helpful. And now we see more parenting books, I think, that are more strategic, tactical mm -hmm. based since then. Yeah. 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 Guidebooks. Right. Yeah. I think, and again, that to me, I, you're absolutely right. And I had very similar um kind of feeling the taste of Adler. So kind of Adler, you go there, you kind of, you drown in it, like you in it, like you in it, you swim, you float, you whatever, but it's ocean. You don't see the other coast um, and it's okay, but you, you just float. So you you never know. And somebody, even at some point, uh, there, were, there was some criticism of Adler that he's like too broad, too abstract, too philosophical, too whatever. And uh, one of his biographers said that he was intentionally so because Adler was leaving space for you to go in and be in that space. So he was living a space. Uh, whereas, again, some critics, the same critics would say, well, Drykers would leave you much space. You kind of do as he said. At the same time, Drykers, and that was his time and as a personality, he, he, people needed advice, people needed guidance. And Drykers was given guidance that was not less deep or less profound than Adler. He was just a different person. I mean, he couldn't be Adler. It's not like Adler version two. He was Rudolf Dreikers. Um, but what was interesting in Dreikers, which I absolutely, especially with there was a whole all these wars 
and uh, drivers would use uh, the word uh, war, um, speaking about the uh, family environment, especially with teenagers, right? The parents would be at war with teenagers, teenagers would be at war with uh, with the parents. And, uh, and Dragos was very up against uh, behaviorists uh, in his time because the, the influence, the impact of behavioral theory was so huge in his time. And it didn't really, it, it didn't even, it wasn't even making a dent in the problems that the families were facing at the time. So Dragos wrote that we don't want behavioral modification, we want motivational modification. We want to change the motivation. We're going into motives, and motives is that what's the goal of behavior, what forces, what moves, because motive came from move. The motion picture is a picture when people started moving versus still photography. So motive is a movement. And so motivational modifications, it's a changing, it's a re-educating uh, about the purposes of behavioral, see what drives what push what pulls the behavior changing that in a more pro-social way and seeing how uh children can get a more adaptive a healthier and happier ultimately um ways of achieving the same goals achieving the same goals be recognized having attention being at the top of the world i mean there is nothing wrong in it unless you do it at the expense of others on the top of on the top of others and then parents uh, have a profound role play, play and a pro profound role in that. We know famous drivers uh, saying that there are no uh, difficult children, there are discouraged ones. You know, I want to extend it and say there are no problems children and family, they're no, they're discouraged parents. They're no bad parents, they're discouraged parents. They also discourage teachers and they're discouraged therapists, discouraged counselors. So the parental discouragement feeds into the child who is discouraged, who is afraid to make a mistake, not to upset a parent, not to uh, have parent not like this child anymore. Every child wants to be a good child and be loved and belong and to feel one over the family. Every single parent wants to be a good parent. There's no doubts in my mind that every parent wants to be a good parent. But some parents are very discouraged. They don't know how to be, and they go on the useless side of life, and then they get kind of deeper and deeper, they sinking into discouragement, and then they've been seen as bad parents or unfit um, parents, right? So I, I think other ones, he used a funny analogy. He said, when the car, when you're driving a car, and, and then you got stalled, uh, and it's new car, it's okay car, and you stalled, you know, you, you, the car is not moving. You're not necessarily jumping immediately into conclusion like this is a bad car, right? So you go into, okay, it can be this, it can be that, maybe it's slippery, maybe I did whatever this. So now, whereas when the child is not, you know, doing something that we don't like that they're doing, then we say it's a bad child, right? Immediately, right? It's a difficult child. We say it's a difficult child. I have a difficult child. So, uh, so discouragement is an ultimate target, I think, in all Adlerian um, intervention and prevention and everything. So we have encouraged parent would be encouraging parent, and encouraged teacher will be an encouraging children. And and the courage, as we know, is that it's not just a courage like hanging in a thin air. It's a courage to risk imperfection, 
that's a whole thing is that we want children who are ready to be courageous to risk imperfection because that would bring them to a next step up toward uh, toward perfection and in a learning sense it's not just perfection that you become perfect perfection is also a verb i'm making everything a verb so perfection is a verb it's a verb of perfecting yourself in the context of perfecting this planet perfecting all of us in a way and there is nothing wrong because i think sometimes word perfection's got kind of bad reputation in a way which i think it kind of upsets me but maybe it's personal maybe it's my lifestyle and maybe it bothers my perfectionism but uh, there is nothing wrong in perfecting yourself in the context of perfecting others. When we watch a piece of art or a, 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 a wonderful photography, right, um, or uh, listening to music like Mozart or what, what have, whatever that might be, we're not afraid to say this is perfect, right? But there was a labor and effort and trials and arrows and everything to bring it to perfection. So to me, I see each child to be getting kind of going through the same process and keep perfecting, like bringing it to like a perfection as a process, perfecting themselves. That would also bring bigger harmony, like really moving harmony to the others and the harmony to this person's soul. So in soul, we'll feel harmonious. We are at peace with ourselves. I don't know where I went with yeah, that. No, I, well, I, I'll, the two things I, uh, that I'll share with you, if you haven't heard them, is when I'm talking about perfection. Um, I think about the Masons, stonemasons, have a saying that something like, um, we, we move towards perfection knowing that we'll never get there. And the Mennonites who do the mm -hmm. quilts, they always have mm -hmm. one stitch that they make off the regular path because they say perfection is saved for God and we're only humble humans, but we're always we're always moving towards the perfection. Mm -hmm. We're honoring the perfection, but there's also this humility that is there. And, um, you know, and, and the idea that of good enough right now, we're good enough right now as we are, we're all we need to be. And from that psychic position that frees us up to try the next thing right and uh right. I, I, that that piece of encouragement you know that you're you're already all you need to be is so is so freeing that is so liberating but it's absolutely a growth mindset you know we're supposed to for living life right we're supposed to live and evolve right until the day we die let's let's hope <laughs> and it should be space for that because if 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 we if we were perfect today what are we gonna i mean tomorrow will be day to die yeah right? so that's right probably, yeah but then to grow you said the growth mindset that really kind of caught me here because to grow you need a space you cannot grow if you are restricted if the roles are too rigid if the be, we'd be root bound in your um analogy yeah. You're going to be, yeah, you're going to be a moral child. Uh, that's a root bound. That's another gardening analogy. Here we go. Okay. <laughs> right. uh, and then, so for that needs to be space, right? So when we have a, a plant that is root bound, the number one advice is what? Get a bigger pot. Yeah. Get the root out. Kind of air them a little bit, uh, solve them in a good solution, and then spread them. So it needs to be a space. So nobody will get encouraged no matter how much we want to have courage everybody wants to have courage i mean everybody wants to walk this yellow brick uh, road right but then there needs to be space and so there is a responsibility of others 
And not just responsibilities a bit worse, it's just a, a good will and good wish of others to create space, to allow imperfection, to encourage uh, imperfection. Um, there was, um, so Adler had a very vibrant communication, we would now say texting or WhatsApp and or whatever, uh, with, his, with his children and his children, because he was on the road a lot, right? And his children had this habit, well, maybe everybody had this habit 100 years ago, who knows? There were a lot of letters, letters back and forth, back and forth. And then uh, his oldest uh, daughter, Valentina, uh, she was born in 1898. She died in 1937. Well, no, she died in 19. She was arrested in 1937. She died in 1942 in Siberian labor camps. But uh, there was a very, very active correspondence when she was still uh, uh, like a schoolgirl, so when she was still a school age uh, with Adler. And in one of the letters on the topic of courage, I think I've mentioned before that Adler struggled with uh, mathematics when he was at school. So I think there was maybe theme in the family. It's quite interesting. Like, you know, families say, well, nobody in our family does math or nobody's in, in our family plays piano. I bet there was something about that because in a couple of letters that she wrote to him when he was probably on a lecture tour somewhere and she was sharing what was going on in her life, uh, she wrote about uh, math classes. So I bet that was not accidental. But in one of the letters, it was quite interesting. I think it was, I don't even remember what year. No, that was 1910. So she would be what? She would be 12 years old, right? Uh, she writes that she was at the, in a math class at the school and the teacher um, was explaining how to calculate the uh, square of trapezoid. I'm not, I'm not sure if modern 12 years old is doing that, but I know. That's <laughs> what I'm telling you. Um, and uh, so the teacher did some explanation and then she, Valley, Valentina, she raised her hand and the teacher said, well, it looks like Adler has a question. And Valentina, as she writes to Adler saying, no, whatever, like naming teacher by name, I don't have a question. I have an answer. I know who how to calculate the square of trapezoid. And then she went to, she was called to the blackboard and she explained everybody she did, how she would uh, calculate the square of trapezoid. And the teacher was very encouraging. It sounds like from the letter saying, look how, but it was interesting because it's also kind of gender topic because a male teacher in the letter, you see there was a male teacher said, look at how dedication can get you to like a, a marvelous um, results. Um, so, and I'm not sure if that would be, okay, that's my kind of gender opinion about that. If that would be the same word used for it, it would be like a male or boy, it would be the same astonishment. Well, you know, or you got an answer. But anyway, that's my speculation, you know, just my hints about that. But it was uh, quite interesting is that what the teacher said, we usually say, do you have questions? Explain the material and say, anybody's got questions. How often do we say, does anybody have an answer? Because we assume that we are, it's kind of top down. We know something. And the only thing we invite when we kind of teach in a top, top down perspective, like in a vertical perspective, then somebody will have a question. So then we can double down and show even how much more competent we are and how much less competent that, which is technically nothing wrong right however it limits it kind of makes this space kind of more and more narrow uh 
and it doesn't invite because we get what we ask for. If we ask, do you have questions? Then naturally people think, okay, I'll ask the question. Questions are usually like, well, I don't understand this. And how would you do that? Why did you say this? Not, nothing wrong in that, except that it's narrow. How about to say, anybody's got, got questions? Anybody questions what I just said, right? But that takes courage for the teacher. Anybody's got answer. Maybe the teacher would stop before the last piece of wisdom and would ask the students and say, or oh, oh, parent for the same thing, what do you think might be a solution here? Who sees the solution here? Who sees the answer here, right? And even if nobody sees that, the message is, I respect your wisdom, right? The wisdom resides uh, in everybody's goodwill. Everybody's capable of that. And maybe not today, but it's tomorrow. And if you will not remember how to calculate, you, you may not know how to calculate the square of trapezoid, but you'll remember one thing is that you are respected as a carrier of wisdom, as a somebody who is capable, who is able to do that. That message we usually remember for very, very long time. Who cares about trapezoids? I mean, who? Like, yeah, I don't. Right. I that's, don't yeah. The bigger learning, the bigger learning is in that relational message and self-concept. Yeah. 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 And, and she trusted that. So she was so proud to share that with her father that, this is how it went. And that's how, you know, the, and then her classmates after that said, well, how great. And not how great that you knew that, but how great that you challenged, not challenged, there was not a word challenge, but but you found the courage, courage, bravery to say, no, I don't have questions, I have answers. And Austrian school was kind of, I mean, there's a little bit, European schools are much more rule bound, I think, bound. Um, than American schools, at least, or Canadian schools these days. Um, not a criticism, but just kind of an observation. So for a girl in a math class to respond to a teacher calling for questions with saying, no, I don't have question, I have an answer, that was a big deal. There was a there was a quite a big deal. And that's an interesting thing. That's Adler. That's like a real Adler. Like, you know, this is what he no no wonder. So that was like 1910. Most of Adler's writing uh, on child raising was in 1920s into 30s. That was his observation of his own family. I mean, his youngest daughter was like quite, I mean, it was quite a big deal. So she was trying to sneak out and um, to, for, to get dates. And she was like smoking secretly, would say now waping or whatever that yeah. might be. And then so he struggled with that and you know, having conversations. So um, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, uh, and Dreikers too. So both Adler and Dreikers, they lived through life and the theory is a reflection of life and it answers to life questions and people's in life's questions. And that's why it's probably alive, the whole theory. And But it's also got space. So there's space for us, for each of us to bring ourselves into and both suck it in, but also kind of give it back in a way uh and and we're, and we're called and we're called to do it right within the theory is 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 to do that give back and to put it to good use and yeah um which i which i appreciate about it um i want to be mindful of the time here you and i i think are teaching together this summer are we not we are we are yeah let me we let are. me throw this we back to you do that. 
before yeah. before we can because yeah. we'll because I'll have you back on the podcast and we'll chunk off another uh, great topic. But is there anything that you you want to make sure that uh, the listeners today that there wasn't any dangling threads or things that you want to wrap up now and then we'll talk about where people can find you next. Uh, I think that the one thing that, and that's kind of my personal excitement, you can just drop it and uh, not, um, or you can catch, I mean, it's contagious. I mean, it's like you can really get the same kind of bug that as I'm having. Um, and that is kind of keep reading about Adlers, keep reading and drivers, keep reading about the, the, the life stories, because the life stories is what's going to feed your uh, soul and feed your mind and will help you uh, to tell these stories, to tell your stories to somebody else stories is what we usually remember and both um, men stories and women that were next to them behind them supporting them um giving them insights and um ideas like sometimes people say do you think Adler was a socialist and i usually say i mean that's one of the hot topics no we're not gonna go there but i usually say well uh, i don't know whether or not Adler was socialist or not but i know one thing every time when he was not on a travel and he was sleeping at home. He was at home. He was waking up next to one. Yeah, right. <laughs> Tell me whether or not he was. So there's a lot of stories, a lot of great other men and a, a lot of great women were in yes. Adler's driver's life. And Adler's life, there was his wife, Raisa, uh, uh, his four children, um, uh, Valentina, Alexandra, Kurt and Carnelia, Nelly, um, his granddaughter, the only grandchild, um, Margaret Adler, passed away in 2014. And her great books, like absolutely amazing two books that uh, I say, read that because it will feed your soul. These are soulful things. These are good things. It's just a good diet. And Drykers to Drykers Life, um, The Courage to Be Imperfect, a biography by, uh, about Drykers. His own book, The Fundamentals of Individual Psychology, Fundamentals of Adlerian Psychology, uh, all the um, children, the challenge, marriage, the challenge, all the, the challenge series. Yes, parenthood, uh, the challenge. Took, he took a couple of cracks at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, uh, completely. But also a lot of people like Lydia Zicher and Herta Orgler, um, others biographers, Phyllis Batam, amazing novelist, just amazing now i think i have like all seven or eight of your books most of them are not about adler but when she writes about adler it's like a blast i mean you hear... yeah that's the one that i read first and enjoyed the most yeah absolutely yeah i have the this is the first edition uh of that and i just kind of like the texture of texture of it uh it's uh, right right after uh, he died sure but so j just read all these things or, or listen to and and Adler's uh, interviews to the newspapers he gave um he wrote several articles for the men's magazine Esquire oh <laughs> I had the actual magazines I have them actual physical huge with tons of pictures heavy paper like a good quality paper with like advertising cigars and shoes and cologne and whatnot <laughs> and others writing about um like how to raise perfect lovers for example uh, and that was in child development there was nothing x-rated there in that article but he writes about what to do and when he meant that's Adler's language sometimes it's a lover's because I remember first reading that thinking, oh my God, like, you know, what's that about? In that journal, what is it going to be about? But uh, he actually meant mates, like, you know, like soulmates, loving mates. 
And he writes about a huge article in Esquire and then on all couples relationships and everything. He wrote uh, for the journal, it was a journal called The Physical Education, like the Fired Journal. And he wrote about uh, developing courage in children as a way to be, help them to become more athletic. But Adler was totally non-athletic. It was a kind of big deal. Here. The, the point that I'm trying to make here, I'm trying to make a point. No, I'm not trying to make a point. I'm trying to make a comma because there is no end of the sentence. Is that uh, read not only read about Adler and Dreikers getting into other spheres other than like a practice of counseling or practice of psychology, practice of parenting, go elsewhere. Go somewhere where, because psychology is everywhere, go somewhere where maybe it's not a typical counseling, psychology, parent education environment, right? Adler consulted Air Force. He did the whole study on like urban development and Air Force uh, leadership potential. Uh, so uh, that's what Dreykos did, that uh, he, he had a couple of contracts, I think, somewhere at that, but I know he did this couple of these studies. So uh, bring Adler and Dreykos, and bring yourself, actually. <laughs> Saturate Bring somewhere where, like, go off the beaten path. Just go off the, okay, well, where are we going to go? Okay, we'll go where people are interested in psychology and counseling, in parent education. So, no, go somewhere that's completely opposite. And it takes courage because you're going to be basically kind of paving your own way, but it's going to be yours. It's going to be fun. It's going to be good for you because you'll learn something from a totally different field. And it's going to be good for those people to have a visitor from like outer space in a way, like from somewhere. So, why not right i love so, that yeah i so love that's that it. so teaching yes yeah, so we're going to be you're not going to be teaching so i look forward for just to catching up and and mingle and hug and touch and do all this kind of face-to-face in actual person. So for, for people that are interested, and I'll put a link in the show notes, we have an international summer school that um, moves around the world. And um, I've taught there, I'm teaching this summer, some some years I go as a student, some years I go as a teacher. Uh, Marie and I are both teaching. Um, and it, it happens the last week of July, first week of August, and this year it's in um, Germany. But it's what's interesting about it is that a lot of people come with their families. And so there is a kids program and people bring their spouses. So there's course offerings for people that want to study on a more casual level um, or see the sites or just you know, put their feet up. And but we do a lot as a group together. And some uh, the one that I'm teaching the the youth, the older youth will be invited if they want to participate, um, they can come to class with their parents. And uh, so it's a really unique and interesting It's like going to camp and going to school. And, you know, and having a, a, a great time building community together. So I hope it, I encourage people to check out a Cassie. Um, what are you teaching on, Marina? You you have such a, a broad. Uh, yeah, that's a challenge. Uh, so I'm teaching. I'm teaching two classes. Uh, I'm teaching uh, in week one. I'm teaching uh, metaphors, hmm. uh, and it just broad metaphors. It's kind of using metaphors and um, kind of getting into metaphorical environment and. Um, and I love that. It's one of my favorite topics because we use metaphors every day. I mean, we use quite a few today. We did today, the gardening. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So we're going to be like planting seeds and watching them grow. It's going to be one week, but then, you know, we're going to put some nutrients. So maybe things will expedite, like, you know, going to be uh, growing faster. And in week two, I'm teaching a class. Basically, it's a foundational class, but it's a uh, it's it's in phases and places. So it's adhering psychology in phases and places. So it's going to be um, we're going to be taking adhering concepts, let's say, life tasks or lifestyle and then we'll go to the origin of that and also what was going on in Adler's and Dreyker's life when they were developing these concepts how this oh, fantastic. so we're going to take and then we're going to be doing a lot of both classes a lot of as that's because is all about a lot of demonstrations going to be demonstrations demonstrations uh, demonstrations both in both classes and on the topic of family absolutely bring your families i'm bringing in disclosure just to tell you how old i am um i'm bringing both of my grandchildren it's going to be uh, 10 years now the next summer this coming summer um for uh, my granddaughter and year nine for my grandson i think i think it's going to be roughly in the neighborhood of that and uh, people are getting hooked on that. So like they're having their friends, their friends are Ikasi friends and their friends are from all kinds of countries. They, um, and it's amazing how one or two weeks of deep connection, how much impact it's gonna make because they stay connected. And you know, the teenagers don't stay connected, especially with like virtual communication, so easy to drop. Like, and if you don't want that anymore, I mean, you're not forced to do that. Um, both of my grandchildren, the one is an adult and another one is a, a teen, um, are staying connected with their Ikasi friends throughout the whole year. I mean, they touch, they know what's going on in life with each other, they encourage each other, they support, they change news. I usually know all the news about others from my grandchildren oh. when I ask. <laughs> so, or when I need to know, I said, so how such and such doing? Like, let's say there is like maybe earthquake, earthquake in a country or something. And if I know that there is one of the friends is there in the neighborhood, then I ask my, before I get any coherent uh, response from like an adult that I would also know, I usually get a whole bunch of information from my grandchildren through there. <laughs> I, I love that week one when everyone gets together and the, and they're, everyone's arriving and you see these heartfelt hugs of these teens who have been waiting, you know, anticipating. I mean, we do it too as the adults, but it's particularly sweet when it's yeah. the teens. And, and adults, I mean, adults are just grown up kids. Yeah, that's right. That's right. If we do it, let's hope. <laughs> oh, Marina, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate your wisdom and your time. And, and you've got these stories that nobody else, um, who knew about the little being hit by a train in, in Montreal. And I, I can't, I can't more far, into your brain. Far. Streetcar, streetcar, not streetcar. Thank you, thank you. Um, until, until the until we pick another topic, and and uh, and looking forward to seeing you in person. Thank you so much. Stay well and appreciate all your contributions. Thank you, Allison. I so appreciate this. Like I love this Monday morning thing. I think it's an absolutely fabulous start uh, for my week. I I wish everybody uh, having a good day, good week. Whenever you listen to that, Allison, I wish you. A good week and i so look forward to uh to seeing you in person give you a big hug yay Mwah. back at you as you know it takes a village to make a podcast so thanks to my team including max cotter my editor and technician as well as the crew at h2o digital this podcast was recorded in toronto canada 
We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit.